0: (laughs) Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. I'm wondering, are we a step closer to creating babies with two biological same-sex parents? Because scientists have made mice with eggs that came from male cells... So what kind of a breakthrough is this? We've got that really interesting story coming up later. We'll have a scientist on who will be able to explain all of that. Also ahead, we're taking you to a nickel mine in Tasmania. We need nickel for stuff like batteries for electric cars. So this kind of mining seems pretty critical in the years ahead. So we'll explain all that to you as well. First, though.
1: Hack. Back the government's safeguard mechanism
0: <laughs> on Triple J. Ah, climate policy. Maybe you've ignored this one for as long as you could. You see the news stories come up on your grid, the safeguard mechanism. Interesting name, isn't it? Kind of crap name. Doesn't really explain what it is. You scroll on quickly. If that's you, I get it. We know so many of you care about cutting emissions, but you just want politicians to get on with it. But before they get on with it, there's some serious negotiations that need to happen. And we've seen that over the past decade. So what is this safeguard mechanism that everyone's talking about? How does it work? Because the government's going to need support to pass it, but the Coalition's saying it goes way too far. The Greens are saying it doesn't go far enough. I'm going to be honest, I had to ask Shalala Medora a lot of questions about this one. So here she is to explain it to everyone.
2: Look, this emissions reduction stuff is really complicated. So I'm going to strip it way back to its most basic elements. In order to stop the effects of climate change, Australia needs to drastically reduce the amount of greenhouse gases we pump into the atmosphere. When the Labor Party won the election, it promised to do just that.
3: A
4: 43% reduction by 2030 on 2005 levels.
2: But in order to get to this target, which is way more ambitious than the Coalition's old target, it needed to find a way to get big polluters to, well, stop polluting. Enter the Safeguard Mechanism.
5: What the government's done is it's picked out the 215 largest emitters. It's basically anyone who emits over 100,000 tonnes of carbon dioxide.
2: That's Bruce Robertson from the Institute of Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. He's going to be our guide for today.
5: The companies have to reduce their emissions every year by 4.9%. But the way that they can do it is they can buy offsets, which are called Australian carbon credit units.
2: So those big polluters are told they need to lower their emissions. But here's the thing, they don't actually need to change anything. They can buy carbon credits with the idea that they're offsetting the carbon they put into the atmosphere.
5: So They might plant some trees, for example, or they might um, preserve an old growth forest or they might look at sequestering carbon in the soil.
2: Carbon sequestration refers to trapping the carbon underground. Bruce says the incentive to force big polluters to change their ways just isn't there.
5: I think that that's a, a hell of a shame that we don't, they don't work on actually reducing the, the, the facility's emissions in the first
2: place. If a company comes out under its emissions limit, it can bank the rest for later or even sell it to other companies that aren't on track to meet their targets. Plus, and this is a big one, there's no limit to how many carbon credits a company can buy they could, in theory, keep polluting at the same level.
5: They can just offset 100% with Australian carbon credit units.
2: And all that planting of trees and burying of carbon, that land's got to come from somewhere.
5: And so we're talking about, generally speaking, doing this on farming land. And when you take farming land out of production, it it will have an effect on food prices and force up food prices. Before
2: any of this happens, the safeguard mechanism needs to pass Parliament.
6: Thank you very much, uh...
2: The Coalition, that is the Liberal Party and Nationals, are against it because they say we'll need fossil fuels for a while still.
6: We
4: cannot turn off a system when the new system is not ready.
2: The Greens are against it because they want the government to commit to ending new coal and gas projects.
4: Coal and gas are the main causes of the climate crisis. Gas is as dirty as coal. And you can't put the fire out while you're pouring petrol on it.
2: The government won't do that.
4: It would be irresponsible to put some sort of blanket ban uh, on.
2: But the government doesn't have the numbers in the Senate to get it passed. It needs the Greens plus one more Senator. It's working on independent David Pocock.
4: We have to get this right. It is a really critical part of our broader
3: climate policy.
2: Bruce Robertson says approving new coal and gas projects don't necessarily impact Australia's emissions because the process of digging them up isn't the problem. They cause the most damage when they're burnt, usually in other countries.
5: Yeah, and that's somebody else's problem. And global warming by its very nature is not a national problem. It's a global problem.
2: Despite all that, Bruce says it would be a shame if the safeguard mechanism doesn't pass parliament because having it is better than having nothing at all.
5: You have to start somewhere in life, and hopefully over time it can be tightened up and broadened. So, so I suppose I do hope in the end that it is passed, um, but it is far from a perfect policy.
0: Shalala Madora with that story. A lot of explanation needed. We've got some messages coming through. Sean says, I'll never vote Greens, but they're right on this one. Another person says, sounds like the safeguard is the status quo. Look, there are big negotiations going on right now, as we've heard. The government can't pass this without the support of the Greens, but the Greens have some conditions that they're saying need to be met. So let's find out about that. Greens leader Adam Bant is with us. Adam Bant, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me on. First question is a pretty simple one. Are the Greens going to vote for this safeguard mechanism? Well, we
4: want to vote for laws that will see pollution from coal and gas go down, because coal and gas are the main causes of the climate crisis, and if we keep opening up coal and gas mines and putting more pollution into the atmosphere, we won't get the climate crisis under control. At the moment, the government's legislation says they want to open more coal and gas mines, they want pollution from coal and gas to go up, and that would make the climate crisis worse. We're in negotiations with the government at the moment to see if we can fix that legislation so that Parliament gets on with climate action. Um, But that's got to mean tackling coal and gas and, at a minimum, we've really got to stop opening new coal and gas mines if we want to have any chance of getting the climate crisis under control.
0: I mean, you've been really critical of this scheme. You've described it as weak. You say it allows corporations to buy their way out. You say it's just Tony Abbott's reheated mechanism. If that is the case and the Greens are really worried about emissions not going down under this scheme, why keep negotiating?
4: Because we want to try and fix it if we can. Um, it, it, part of the problem with this is that pollution from coal and gas keeps going up because Labor opens more coal and gas mines. Uh, and then it says, uh, well, as long as those coal and gas corporations buy a few tree planting permits on the other side of the country, they can count their pollution as going down. And the problem is that's you know, on paper it might look like um that's taking climate action, but in reality more pollution gets put into the atmosphere. So we're trying to fix the scheme if we can, um but the root cause of a, of The climate crisis is coal and gas, and that's what we're trying to tackle in our discussions with the government.
0: I mean, you say at a minimum no new coal and gas. The Greens are saying that's what we're bringing to the table here. We want the government to agree with that, then we'll support this. But the government has ruled it out. They say they're not going to agree to that. So, how are you going to get past that?
4: Well, the reason we're putting that on the table, we're putting it on as an offer. Um, not an ultimatum to say, look, we will put aside our concerns with the scheme, including the ability to have these offsets, which are the ways of buying permits to get out of cutting your pollution, including the weak targets. But you we'll said as a minimum.
0: Tomorrow. But you said as yeah, a minimum. That's,
4: and, that, and that's what the science says. The science says, and the UN Secretary-General and the... Uh, International Energy Agency and the the world scientists all say really clearly, to have any chance of getting the climate crisis under control, we've got to stop opening new coal and gas mines. And it's what our Pacific Island neighbours say as well. They say, that's the start. Um, We're trying to convince the government of that. Now, if we can get the government some way along the line, then of course, we're prepared to work together and compromise and pass legislation. And in this parliament where no one party has a majority, um, then uh, then people have got to work together. Will we get everything we want? We, we might not. probably, And the government might not either. But everyone's got to give a bit. And what we're trying to get the government to understand is that the science is saying um, we can't keep opening new coal and gas mines and we hope that that Um, or a version of that or a step towards that would be reflected in the government scheme.
0: I guess the hard thing is that you've got the government saying, look, we're open to negotiations too, but we're only considering sensible suggestions. But it seems like the two sides, the Greens and the government have different ideas of what's sensible, like in terms of other measures, maybe pausing new coal and gas projects and, and things like that. The government's already ruled that out and said, no, we're not considering that either.
4: Look, we've got the people and the science on our side, and 66% of people under 34 agree with our position that in a climate crisis where Australia is burning and flooding and we're having droughts, that we shouldn't be opening more coal and gas mines, because I think people understand that that's um, what is driving the climate crisis. Now, uh, people have been putting uh, some suggestions on the table as ways through, as you've mentioned, others have said, or well, let's have a thing called a climate trigger, which says, look, before any big new project goes ahead, you have to look at what it's going to mean for the climate. And so that wouldn't be um, necessarily a, a blanket ban, but it would mean you have to look and work out, is this a good thing for the climate and for our environment? So a number of ideas have been put on the table and, and we're prepared to look at them all and look at them all in good faith. Uh, but it comes back to that, that key question that we still don't think the government And Labor has come up with any really good justification, really, about why they want to keep opening more coal and gas mines because you can't put the fire out while you're pouring petrol on it. And the first step towards fixing the problem is stopping making the problem worse. And that's what we're
0: having Um, our discussions with the government about at the moment. The Environment Minister has been pretty scathing and she says the Greens are self-righteous, that you shouldn't make the same mistake that you made in 2009 when voting with Tony Abbott and Barnaby Joyce to block action on climate change. So what do you say to that?
4: Well, of course, in 2010, the Greens and Labor voted together to get climate legislation through the parliament and we all compromised and we all gave a bit... And it worked. You know, Unfortunately, Tony Abbott came along later and tore it down, but we're actually cutting pollution in this country. And last year, even though we didn't think the targets were good enough, we supported the government's legislation to enshrine climate targets in law because it was a small step on the road to tackling the climate emergency just today in parliament. We've managed to support the government's bill to put money into manufacturing by getting an amendment that stops the money going to coal and gas. So, you can see where there's goodwill, then we're prepared to work together. But look, if the end of the day, um, the government's got to decide, Labor's got to decide how important is it that they keep opening coal and gas mines, because that's what the sticking point is at the moment. We'll work um, around the clock to see if we can get this legislation fixed and get it through. But the ball's really in Labor's court as to how much they want to keep opening coal and gas mines.
0: You're listening to Hackham. Dave Marchese, speaking with Greens leader Adam Bant about this safeguard mechanism, the government's climate policy that they're trying to get past. Adam Bent, there's been a lot of talk about gas over the past few months. Our listeners will be really familiar with those conversations about, you know, gas crisis, not having enough gas. And heaps of that discussion's been happening. Predictions have been made. We've had the ACCC, the Consumer Watchdog and others warning of a massive shortfall of gas in the years ahead in Australia. Is stopping new gas projects actually the smartest thing to do when we could be facing a shortfall?
4: Well, there's plenty of gas in Australia, Australia is awash with it. The problem is the big corporations suck it out of the ground, sell it overseas, uh, they, they don't pay any tax on it, they often don't even pay for the gas in the first place, and then Australian businesses and households are left paying sky-high international prices. There's plenty of gas. What the government needs to do is use the powers that we gave it last year and reserve enough for people here in the country while we make the transition. And the C, the Consumer Commission said, look, there's lots of uncontracted gas around. And if all that goes overseas, then yes, Um, there might be issues in Australia, but the government's now got the power to keep that gas here. So the problem's not that we don't have enough gas. We've got plenty of it. It's just the big corporations are making billions of dollars um, by sending it offshore. Well, save some of it for Australia first, use it for the transition. Greens leader Adam
0: Bandt, thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks very much. We've got a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, you know, um, there aren't – how can you ban, sorry, new projects without providing an alternative energy solution to the populace? I understand the environmental impact, but what about the impact to services and people's lives? Another person, a similar thing. What will this mean for already rising power and gas prices? Another person says, um, Andy, same old, same old. Make out like you're doing something actually doing bugger all. And another person says, there are not enough land offset resources available to offset fossil carbon pollution. Look, a lot of opinions on this one. We're gonna be hearing a lot more about it as those negotiations continue.
1: Hack With how the world's evolving, it is essential to, to mine, but it's essential to mine in the right way. On Triple J.
0: So we're talking about climate action, cutting emissions. We just heard the Greens say, we need to stop all new coal and gas developments. But is there a kind of mining that can help the environment? And what about the minerals that we need to make things like batteries? They've got to be mined. And so if we want to see more electric cars, for example, we're going to need these critical minerals. And Australia's got heaps of them. There's actually a mine in Tasmania that's just reopened because of this spike in demand. Our Tassie reporter April McLennan's been out visiting the mine to find out what's going on there.
1: If we just pop our heads out this door and try and stay out of the rain, what's what's going on out here? We're actually right beside the portal, which is the entrance to underground. We only have one portal, so it does get a little bit busy. We've got a lot of vehicles going by. So once you go in the portal, what, what's down there? It's this deep, dark hole into the side of almost like a cliff face. So the way to describe it, as soon as you go down underground, it's just like a big rocky maze. So you would have someone driving you down and they'd be describing, well, this is a rock, this is another rock. (laughs) I'm just hanging out with 23-year-old Havana Humphrey. She's a truck driver here at the Avebury Nickel Mine just out of Zeehan. The mine's hidden in thick green forest on Tassie's west coast. So what do we need nickel for? Batteries. So with the economy and I guess the future, with how we're all going, um, everything's going to be battery just to kind of help the, the footprint, I suppose. And we are very proud of what we do because we know we're making a difference for the future. And although mining, as we said before, it does have that image, it's about the positive progression of it. So this mine's actually just been sitting here doing not much for more than a decade, but because everyone wants an electric car now, business is booming and it's recently opened back up. It's estimated EVs will make up between a third and two thirds of global sales by 2030. Whatever the true number, the Avebury Mine General Manager, John Lamb, thinks this mine's gonna play a big part.
6: And the world has made a decision that we're decarbonising, and there's no stepping back from that decision. The reality of it is that we need nickel to do that and there just isn't enough of it. So there's never been a better time to produce those metals.
1: So with all this mining we've got to do, are electric vehicles actually a good thing for the environment? Some experts say EVs take more energy to produce than petrol and diesel cars. But John reckons it all comes down to what sort of nickel is used in the EV batteries.
6: So we have nickel sulphide, it's called battery grade nickel, class one nickel. It's readily turned into battery ingredients without a lot more energy being expended. So that's the good sort of nickel for making batteries. Most of the world's nickel, however, is laterites and nickel pig iron. It's possible to turn those into battery products, but it's very, very energy intensive.
1: After energy production, transport actually comes in as Australia's second biggest source of national emissions. And this is mostly because of road vehicles cutting back is super important for one of the government's signature policies to lower emissions significantly over the next decade and to reach net zero by 2050. I can hear a rumbling in the background. What is that? That is a bogger, I'm pretty sure. Very known for being loud. (laughs) Oh, no, this is the bomb truck. Oh, okay. so he just loaded um, a bunch of explosives into the magazine. Havana and I have just been joined by 22-year-old Tiani Dillon. She's also a truck driver here at the mine. I guess in the past, mining has had a bit of an image problem. What would you say to people who still think that? I'd say mining has come a very long way over the years. You know, especially with environmental issues and that, we're we're really on board with keeping on top of that and making sure that there is no environmental hazards. Yeah, we're, we're getting there. We're going for the future. This mine wants to set an example of what a modern critical mineral mine should look like in Australia. It's pretty neat, clean and small, and they're determined to keep their footprint tiny. So every tonne of waste rock that comes out of the underground mine goes back in and they use hydro and wind power as well. Soon, they're hoping they'll be using electric trucks.
6: In all countries on Earth, we can see the past scars of poor mining practices, the environmental damage caused by mining, but we can't live without the minerals that come from mining. And What that means is we have to get it right. Uh, it's important to welcome mining in places like Australia, precisely because we have a loud environmental voice, and that loud environmental voice is heard when the legislators write legislation and when the regulations that we operate under are created. If we shout too loudly and we push mining off into third world countries we lose the ability to see it we lose the ability to control it and i think we'll be doing the world a great disservice hack on triple j
0: april mcclennan with that story someone on the text line says mining renewables is very different mine once use forever whereas coal and gas is mine once used once Look, we've been hearing there is a huge demand for these minerals. So where does Australia sit in all of this? Because we know that Australia's been one of the biggest exporters of coal. Dr John Coyne is with the Australian Strategic Policy Institute and he's with us now. Dr Coyne, thanks for coming on Hack.
3: My pleasure, Dave.
0: How big of a player is Australia in this rare mineral sector?
3: Look, we're we're big and depends. You know, there's a lot of terminology thrown around this. So there's critical minerals and rare earth. So rare earth is not actually that rare, but it's hard to find in the concentrations that we need it. Um, Critical minerals really come back to a couple of things. They're critical to the economy, uh, but we call them critical also because um, they're vulnerable to distortions in terms of the market and their availability. Um, But we have a potential of being a massive player. Um, both in terms of the mining, but more importantly, a massive um, player in modern manufacturing around green tech. Okay.
0: Are other countries trying to get their hands on these minerals that we've got here?
3: Look, they are, um, and I think this is the important thing to remember. They already have, and there's some negative consequences of that. Okay, so let's, for a moment, let's look at um, magnesium. Um, a critical mineral, okay? It's used in a whole heap of different um, applications, including making um, aluminium. Right now, about 93% of the globe's supply is controlled by um, Chinese state-owned companies. Now, that's that's not necessarily a problem, um, especially if you're an old guy like me who bought into globalisation and just-in-time supply chain. It becomes a problem when, like two years ago, what we saw is a, a local domestic change in policy that resulted in a global... Um, um it shut down in manufacturing, uh, infected the production of um, EVs amongst other products um, and shot the price through the roof. It's not just things like
0: electric cars that this stuff's used for, right? Like these minerals are needed for military technology, weapons, those sorts of things. Do you think we're going to see the government trying to stop some countries have access to these mines or are we
3: already seeing that? Um, Look, we're already seeing that and we're seeing changes going about in a variety of different places. So um, in terms of the US, uh, we're starting to see some real signs of this sort of economic nationalism where they're inwardly focused and shutting themselves off. In other places like Canada, we've seen the introduction of new legislation to stop the sale of mines to foreign companies. Um, In Australia, we're starting to see that. We saw it just recently. So same buyer, a buyer wanted to buy a, a Chinese-owned company, wanted to buy um, an iron ore mining company. Uh, they're allowed to under the Foreign Investment Review Board. Uh, they wanted to buy into some rare earth and critical mineral mining at the same time. They weren't allowed to because those supply chains are very vulnerable. So roughly about 100% of the heavy rare earths um, used to make magnets and those sorts of things in modern tech, um, including in green tech, but also in missiles, Um is controlled by mainland China, um, and about sixty to eighty percent of light rare earth.
0: That's very interesting, right? So, I mean, the the, the long and short of it is that it's probably going to be good for our economy in the years
3: ahead. Look, it is, but um, we want to be more. So, the thing here is, is that um, you know, and I was listening to the segment before, and you know, we want to mine the right way in this country if we're going to mine. Um, Unlike iron ore, renewables are important here. So uh, vanadium is an example, high flow vanadium batteries. Vanadium is 100% recyclable. Um, Lithium isn't 100% um, recyclable, but very, very close. Um, So we want to be that sort of country that does the right sort of mining. But more importantly, um, we want to be a 21st century country that does modern manufacturing. We want to be building um, electric vehicles. We want to be building new batteries. we want to be building, um, you know, wind turbines, solar panels, um, and that will create jobs opportunities for Australians. Um, it'll be important economically, and it means we're doing more than um, digging up ore out of the ground and sending it overseas.
0: Hey, it's interesting stuff. We're going to be hearing a lot more about it, and we appreciate your insights. Dr John Coyne from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, thanks for joining us on Hack.
3: Thanks, guys. Imagine that there could
0: be applications that could help thousands of people out there. On Triple J. What if you could create a baby with two biological parents of the same sex? Two biological dads, for example. Because scientists have done this, apparently, with mice. They've managed to generate eggs from male cells. And it's got people thinking, hey, this maybe has the potential to be a game changer for same-sex couples or for people with severe forms of infertility. But could it work with humans? And how does this kind of stuff work in terms of cells? Let's ask an expert. Dr. Kiara Bruggerman is a biomedical engineer with ANU, and she's with us now. Dr. Kiara, thanks for coming on Hack.
7: Thanks for having me.
0: Great to be here. This sounds wild. What is the science behind creating eggs from male cells? Like, how is that possible?
7: So it's... It's less crazy than it sounds. Um, your your adult cells, the cells that are that you think of as your cells, you know, your brain cells, your liver cells, your heart cells, they've they've all sort of chosen a career, and it's difficult but not impossible to get them to take a step back and go down a different pathway, as it were. So it's it's called induced pluripotency or induced stem cells. And it's basically taking a cell out of its environment that it's used to being. So in this case, I think it was skin cells, Mm -hmm. but um, other types of adult cells, you can take them from your body, put them in a particular environment that has particular chemicals and little specifically chosen bits of DNA all around it. And that can sort of trigger those previously decided stem cells or non-stem cells into Taking a step back and becoming less decidedly skin cells and instead becoming cells that have potential to turn into lots of other cells. Wow. So they take, yeah, adult cells, bring them back down into stem cells and then direct them down another pathway into whatever cell you like.
0: Okay, that makes sense. I mean, there's obviously so much research going on around the world into all of this. What we've seen with the creating eggs from male cells in mice, is it easy enough to translate that into humans? That's a very good question.
7: It is more difficult to do in humans for a few reasons. One is because human cells just need more time. We are a bit more complex and we do take a bit longer to get ready so you need to give us time you need to be patient with (laughs) human cells and it's not just that it takes time but in that time there are more chances for things to go wrong and it's surprisingly difficult to just keep cells alive in a petri dish they it's not their fully native environment and many cells don't last that long in a petri dish Another really relevant aspect of why this is more difficult in human cells, this particular application, is because we start getting into that ethical area in question of modif- genetically modified embryos mm. and genetically modified children. And it's I love how you introduced this story about people getting really excited about this idea of, you know, potentially you could have a genetic child of To male or genetically male parents which is wonderful because that's kind of something that the the field would like to do too we'd like to deal with fertility issues where modifying genetics is absolutely unavoidable that's what fertility is as a as a little bit of a a starter because there are many other diseases that can be treated or have the potential to eventually be treated with this sort of technology but we need to get people on board with it people okay with the idea of doing genetic modifications to deal with other genetic diseases to deal with neural conditions to deal with heart conditions so if everyone can get excited about the fertility then we can start dipping our toes in other areas as well.
0: Yeah, I imagine it's going to take a lot of convincing for some people because they're pretty concerned or scared by this idea. Just quickly, we've only got 30 seconds left, but this is being used, the cells, no, don't you be sorry, these cells um, and and reprogramming them, is it being used to fix other problems at the moment?
7: Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, One area of research I really love is the idea of taking adult waste derived stem cells. So there are actually stem cells in fat tissue that can be extracted from the fat that gets removed during liposuction. There are stem cells in your wisdom teeth when you get your wisdom teeth out. And those cells, we can sort of induce them to be a little bit less like the fat cell or like the dental cell and instead more like neural cells and use them to repair damaged nervous tissue.
0: Interesting. That's crazy stuff. Look, I I want to hear more about it. I'm sure we'll be speaking to you again about this stuff. Dr. Kiara Bruggeman from ANU, thank you so much for your time.
7: Thank you. Hack on Triple J.
0: Big thanks again to all of our guests. Uh, big show on Hack today. And we'll be back for another big show. We've got the shake up tomorrow. I'll catch you then. Bye-bye.